When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me. My name is Greg Soden. On this episode, the topic of conversation is the novel Gone to the Wolves, and my guest is the author, John Ray. Gone to the Wolves dives deep into the wild, funhouse world of heavy metal and death cults in the 1980s and 1990s. The book follows the lives of three friends, Kip, Kira, and Leslie, through their friendships and travels across Florida, California, the Netherlands, and Norway. The book lays bare the intensity, tumult, and thrill of friendship in adolescence, a time when music can often feel like life or death. This book is so wonderful, and as a fan of heavy metal music myself, seeing bands like Merciful Fate, King Diamond, Obituary, and Cannibal Corpse get mentioned in such a fantastic literary work made me so happy as a reader. I had so many flashbacks to my own youth growing up going to shows as well. John and I also discovered just before this interview that he grew up in Buffalo, which is where I currently live. I love this novel and I am so delighted to bring you this conversation. If you want to follow along with what John is doing, you can find him on Instagram at the John Ray, and Ray has a W in front of it. Please enjoy my conversation with John Ray on Gone to the Wolves. John Ray, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. John, I'm delighted that you're here. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the listeners out there so they know who you are and what you do before we get off and running today. Well, my name is John Ray. I mostly write novels. I do a little bit of music journalism uh, every now and then, but uh, I'm mostly just uh, just a writer. I was born in Washington, D.C., but I lived in Buffalo, New York between the ages of two and 17. Mm-hmm. 
so I consider myself a Buffalonian. Love it. That's great. And, That's where um, I live for listeners out there, you know, it's so funny that you grew up where I live now. Yeah, we just figured out that funny coincidence. <laughs> um, fantastic. Not that a lot of people don't live in Buffalo, but still the odds are against a coincidence like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what, what else I should say about myself. I'm a guy who writes books. That's awesome. Well, how did you get into writing? How did you kind of find yourself uh, on that path of uh, realizing that that is something that you wanted to do and pursue your life doing? You know, I really just kind of backed into it, honestly. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I thought that anyone who did anything like writing books or, I don't know, making art of any kind, um, you know, really had to feel some kind of deep calling for that uh, from from their youngest years. But I was not, not one of those kids. I really loved reading books, and uh, my mom uh, was a big reader. Uh, but it wasn't until years and years and years and years later that I ever considered writing as a, as, as a job of any kind, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was one of those kids who dabbled in all sorts of stuff. I mean, I think when I was a teenager, I, I spent way more time trying to figure out how to do, um, claymation animation in my basement with, uh, with just like silly putty and or like, um, now, what was that stuff called? I can't remember now. <laughs> Whatever, like, you know, with like Play-Doh than I ever did trying to think about, about writing or anything like that. But I think that maybe because I, I read a lot and was read to a lot as a kid, um, that was just kind of imprinted on me. You know, I just kind of tried everything. I, you know, I played in, in bands. I, I tried to... Um, learn how to learn how to make sculpture. I mean, when I was in college, I really, I was one of those weird kind of ADD people who just, (laughs) you know, every three months I had a different major and was trying to do a different thing. I was flailing really, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, And then I guess it was kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall or something. I mean, the the one thing that I seemed to have some kind of uh, luck with, I guess, was, um, was writing and specifically writing fiction. And um, I, you know, for the life of me, I couldn't explain why that is. It's so um, interesting too. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was open to it. It's not that I was resistant to, to writing as a, as, but you know, growing up in Buffalo, it's just not necessarily, you know, you don't probably don't know a lot of people who do it, you know? Right. At least I didn't growing up. I knew exactly zero people who did that. I didn't even know anyone who who worked for the newspaper. Hmm. So um, maybe I I did always kind of think it would be a fun thing to do, but I never really believed it was something something feasible to really try and do. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get the uh, whole backing into it thing because I've made hundreds and hundreds of these like interviews and podcast episodes over the last like seven years now. Yeah. And I never, you know, thought about doing like any kind of like broadcasting or journalism or real oral history kind of stuff. Yeah. But I just kind of found myself doing it and it just kind of stuck. You know what I mean? So I kind of resonate sure. with that, even though, even though in my view, writing is significantly harder because there's so many more variables to keep in place with uh, regards to making a novel than it is to making something like this. But well, they're different the variables, you know, they're different yeah. variables. I don't know if it's, I mean, it's, it requires maybe more, more patience or more willingness to kind of, because it is a very long slog. 
to write mm-hmm. a book. That's that's maybe the difference. I don't know. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, you're just sitting down and trying to put some words together. Um, and if you think of it that way, then it becomes a lot easier to do because you don't, you know, you don't psych yourself out about it or intimidate yourself by by thinking that everything has to be incredibly great that you're that you're cranking out. I don't know. Every job is hard in its way, probably. Yeah. Well, some okay. jobs are hard and fun. And yeah. Some jobs are hard and not fun. I think that's, and I've had, you know, well, I had a lot of that, the second category of job, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I found you because I, I don't remember exactly how it was, but last May, when your recent novel, Gone to the Wolves, came out, I think I found out about your work because of NPR. I think NPR ran a a review of your book. And anytime that like metal and things like that get mentioned in reviews, my, you know, within like a mainstream media publication, like NPR, when something like that pops in, I, I, my ears perk up a little bit. (laughs) So I went and got the audio book from audible immediately upon its release, but then I never, I never tucked into it, but I recently got a new Kindle and I was like, I wonder if I should go back and listen to all those books that I got on Audible that I've never gotten to yet. Sure. And I found your book. And so I got the text from my library and I hit play on the audio and I just started reading along on the Kindle while also listening. So uh-huh. I actually just got like a really immersive experience of your book all the way through where it was narrated to me as I read it. Oh, that's interesting. Do you do that I- often with books? I do because I can no longer focus in silence on a book mm-hmm. and and follow plots in in novels anymore. Like in order to get through an entire novel, I have to complement the audio and the text at the same time with headphones or I will never get to the end. You've been corrupted by your life of podcasting. I think so. I think so. You've got but a podcast brain. I do, absolutely. <laughs> and but I also uh I just finished it the other day. I was in New Orleans on vacation. Oh, nice. And so I finished reading your book and I was reading the Norway section while like sitting in New Orleans, which was <laughs> very jarring. But um, so the book has been out for a bit and that's how yeah. I found it. And I'm wondering if you can tell me what the last year of your life has been like since the book has been out for a while. We can kind of reflect on the promotional experience and the aftermath of its release. So how sure. has the last year been for you? Well, this book was very fun to uh, it was very fun to write for me. Um because the subject matter was just so juicy and so, I don't know, just sort of enjoyable for me to spend time with. Um, but promoting the book was also a lot of fun because um, you can get a little goofy with the promotion of it. You can get a little, a little, a little silly with it, or you, you know, because some books are, you know, are, are about such weighty themes and such heavy topics that it, you know one has to be respectful all the time. Whereas for me, metal is something that I love, but it's also something that is extremely impressive and, and, and worthy of profound respect um, as an art form. But of course, there are also aspects and elements of the culture that are very fun and very funny. And, mm-hmm. and uh, growing up, I knew some metalheads who were very intelligent, articulate uh, people who have gone on to great things. I also knew some, some total lunkheads, you know, who mm-hmm. were just hilarious characters, uh, <laughs> you know, who I who I definitely um, borrowed from when I was writing certain characters in the book, you know? So I was just, I was, for me, it was, 
going back to a time in my life when um, things were, it's, it's, it's about sort of being a teenager or being in your early 20s. And um, that's a time when you take things incredibly seriously, maybe more seriously than you would later in life. But then other things as a kid of that age, you don't take seriously at all. You know, you kind of feel immortal as though you'll never die and you never think about where you'll be at age, you know, 65 or something like that. You know, there are a lot of things you just don't even worry about at all. Um, but then, you know, some comment that someone might make at a, at a bar uh, in passing will haunt you for a week, you know? <laughs> yes. Because, you know, because you're 19 years old or 22 or whatever it is, and, and your sense of yourself is so unformed still that if someone kind of says something a little disparaging or disses you in some way, you know, it takes you forever to come to terms with that. At least, I mean, that's what I was like as a teenager. And um, I guess that's just a long way of saying that that um, we got to play around with, with some promotional stuff um, that wouldn't have worked with some other books of mine, I suppose. Um, mm. I mean, we, rec we recorded a song and, and made a weird kind of spooky um, kind of fake black metal video to go with it. Hmm. I'll have to and, go back and find um, that. I didn't see that. Yeah, it's, it, it's on the publisher's website somewhere and a couple other places. Um, I mean, none of this was even necessarily done with with i mean i suppose in some way it was intended to be promotional for the book but it was also just sort of celebratory and having fun with it and thinking okay so here's this novel about metal as far as i could determine or, or my publisher could, could figure out it was really kind of the first attempt to take metal seriously in a kind of literary format and and write a book that would would somehow represent from a few different perspectives and a few different subcultures, what this very complex and very widespread and influential form of music and, and culture is, you know, uh, metal is something that, you know, as you were saying earlier, doesn't get a lot of attention or respect from uh, the non-metal media. Mm -hmm. So it was fun to try and, and correct some misperceptions. Yeah, it was really interesting to me how I didn't, intend to the book didn't come up come about because uh, you know someone suddenly mentioned that there hadn't been a metal novel or that I suddenly you know it didn't begin with any kind of grand plan like that it was just uh you know I was thinking about some people I used to know and some great stories they had told me and that kind of germinated in my brain for a little while and I thought oh maybe there's there's a story there or, or you know maybe a book could come out of it this one friend of mine in particular happened to be from Venice, Florida, which was very important um, mm -hmm. in the kind of birth of, of, of death metal. It all just kind of came, came together in a very organic way. But at some point, I was, ta I was talking with my editor, who, you know, who's a very fancy literary New York books guy, but who, as it turns out, played in a speed metal band in high school in L.A., <laughs> What were they called? I think they they had some incredibly generic metal name that a million other bands <laughs> have had. I mean, I want to say Psychosis or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. And we we just kind of started to read. We couldn't find any examples of, you know, and and that was fun because I think we both realized, okay, maybe this is really worth doing, you know, because maybe this is an underserved, underrepresented culture, um, at mm -hmm. least at least in terms of, quote unquote, 
literary books. You know, uh, you know punk rock and, and, and even hardcore has gotten all sorts of attention, you know. Um, and it's been completely assimilated into mainstream, even highbrow culture. But metal is still a complete um, outlier in that regard. And I think it has to do with, with issues of class, which are, don't get talked about enough in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the kids who were into metal when I was in high school, whether that perception was accurate or not, they were perceived to be the kids who were never going to go to college, you know, yeah. who were never going to do anything, the burnouts or whatever. There are all sorts of coded ways to talk about those people. But uh, what I realized much later was a lot of that had to do with the fact that these kids weren't, you know, their parents hadn't gone to Ivy League schools and they might not do that either. And they just weren't, they just weren't part, part of the kind of upper middle class club that would then go on to, you know, decide what gets written about in a, in a magazine like The New Yorker. Yeah. You know, and I, I resonate with that, too, because I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not from Buffalo, but your depiction of what the people who listen to metal were, you know, perceived to be going on to do. That was the exact same in my experience as well in the late 90s, um, yeah. you know, with, with regards to what my community was like. Um, what was your metal progression like? Were you like a little metal kid growing up in Buffalo, too? I was um, never really part of any particular scene when I was in Buffalo. I was probably more of a of a hardcore kid. Like mm. I remember going to see Black Flag in Buffalo, mm. shows like that. Um, I did see um, Cannibal Corpse play. Yeah, who of course were you know very important in in, in death metal later. And um, you know it's not a coincidence that I mentioned them in the first sentence of of my book. You know. Because mm -hmm. I, I just like the fact that they were from Buffalo and, and um, uh, also that they just have the best name. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's a good name to start a, a novel off with. It's definitely attention getting. I was, I was, I was a kid who would go to see anything that was kind of loud. I would go if I, you know, if I could get in the door. Um, and then when I, when I went to college, it, I, I kind of, my taste in music continued to be really eclectic. But uh, I actually got more into uh, metal and particularly the kind of less commercial forms of metal, more underground metal uh, when I was at college. Um, but at the same time, I was listening to, you know, a lot of punk and a lot of um, what was called alternative rock at the time. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was kind of kind of person who never found a ton of bands that 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 he really liked in any one particular sort of sort of subculture you know so i would kind of pick and and choose i was always very snobby um mm. no reason to be snobby at all i had no justification for it <laughs> i just basically just didn't like most music you know um gotcha and there were some there were some bands that um that i really did like and that really did um resonate with me that happened to be uh that happened to be metal bands but even then not from any one particular you know one of the interesting things about metal is that it, it's so fractal and has so many sub-genres and sub-forms that then splinter again into sub-sub-sub-groupings. It's, it's so incredibly complex, actually. 
I never really thought about any of that stuff. It was more just like, oh, someone, you know, back in those days, in the early 90s, someone would just pass you a tape or, uh, you know, or you'd hear some old scratchy record that you liked. Um, and that was how I got turned on to some of the bands that I liked at that time. But I was never really a metalhead. In fact, a lot of the metalheads in Buffalo that I kind of would interact with a little bit at shows um, sort of scared me, you know. Mm. I was nervous. I was an outsider in the scene. Later, I came to realize that most of those people um, were extremely kind and sweet. Um, you know, I have to say, honestly, working as a music journalist, too, the people that I interacted with, um, you know, from metal bands were overall more polite, better behaved and more modest and kind of open and friendly than definitely than than like, I don't know, people in hip hop that I interacted with, for example. Yeah. If I got if I if I was writing about a, a, a metal band, I could generally assume that it was going to be a fairly pleasant experience you know yeah well and interestingly i'm going to see a grindcore band in buffalo tonight okay um, i'm going to see a band called drop dead uh-huh. um, and i'm seeing them tonight and so <laughs> I, I totally uh they're playing at a place uh called the hostel which is uh downtown yeah it's just a it's a hostel that has shows <laughs> uh there's no stage and uh, it's right across the street from shays the uh the major yeah. theater in town well, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to see some grind tonight, which I'm uh, I'm real pumped about. Um, that's fun. Yeah, I'm 40. I'm still going to shows uh, just as much as ever, which uh, yeah. that's well, that's I, a good I, sign. I will never stop. Uh, <laughs> you know, your uh, your book has three major characters: Kip, Kira, and Leslie. And you know, they remind me a bit of some of my friends growing up. Uh, and like the plot starts off and it shows them bonding over music it shows Mm -hmm. driving around so many memories that any listener who was into music live music can think about you know that that uh 12 15 a.m trip to taco bell you know what i mean (laughs) it's like a flashback of my own years growing up in st louis and going to punk shows and stuff too and like uh the experience after the shows is just as important as the experience at the shows yeah and you know, the shows that you talk about in Florida in the book, like uh, the Cannibal Corpse show that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Obituary, some other bands that I really liked. Yeah. How how important is it for you for, for ambiance uh, and, and the settings of these, uh, of these scenes of like what it's like to be so impacted by music and live music as a kid? Tell me about like writing about that kind of stuff for you. Well, I mean, setting is a kind of, it's another way of talking about detail, really, and and writing fiction is it comes down to the details you choose to include and and um one of the things that makes i don't know like a like a first draft of a of a of a book not compelling or or seem kind of flat or wooden is that is that it hasn't been kind of the lens of the camera isn't totally in focus and and those sort of little telling details are not all there that make a bunch of words actually at some point come alive for a reader I think um and it's a wonderful thing to have a clear sense of 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 your setting to know exactly where you're going to locate the things you want to write about because that in and of itself will kind of bring the other stuff kind of up out from wherever at the sort of back bottom of your brain these things hide out you know I mean it it, having a, a 
clear sense of, of where your characters are will tell you a lot about what they're into and what they hate and what they want from their lives. Um, and I was lucky to have a good friend, as I had mentioned, who was from Venice, Florida, and um, told me some wonderful stories and uh, kind of got me started in that, in, uh, you know, in, in, on this project. Um, and I went down there, spent time down there, talked to people and got to know some people. Um, and just having a place where you, where you kind of like to be in your own mind mm -hmm. um, is very, very useful. For writing a book because it's something you have to do pretty much every day for for years so it's good to choose a setting and, and, a, and a place that you like to go to um as silly as that sounds you know um because a big part of of writing a book um is just sticking with it and not bailing on it after after a year or something when it doesn't turn out to be exactly what you thought you were writing when you started um so it was really fun of course to write about these venues that I had seen or that I knew or that I'd been told about, you know, of course, some of them were no longer there um, because, uh, you know, the book begins in the late 80s and and goes into the early 90s. So some of those venues actually are still there. There was a club in, in um, Tampa that I, you know, definitely didn't think would still exist and, and it was still going. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like sometimes you, you, you start something or you think you might to write about something and then it just doesn't quite ever click with you and it becomes very hard and usually you have to give up um but the opposite is true too you know when you've when you've kind of found something that you're comfortable with and, and genuinely interested in um yeah and once i got writing on gone to the wolves uh, and realized how much fun it was for me to write about metal and about these kids um i kind of thought well it's weird that it's taken me this long to do it you know mm. i mean it's my my sixth novel it's not you know i mean this this would have in some ways would have made more sense uh, as a first novel you know mm. to, to sort of revisit some elements of my youth and all that um it. yeah i don't know it was it was um i i made a point of going physically going to the places that i wrote about in the book so you know i I was spending some time in Los Angeles anyway, because I have family out there, but then I also made sure to go to Norway, um, to the places I was going to write about. And I, in fact, went so far as to decide that I was going to go in the middle of winter, um, because that, that's when the characters in the novel go to Norway. Um, and <laughs> you know, as beautiful as Norway is in the summer, you know, there's no more beautiful place on the planet. Um, uh, I, I just felt like I had to go in the wintertime and it was very dark and very wet, very cold. Uh, I still enjoyed it. I bet. Yeah. And it was, a the, the book has like these three sections. It's divided really nicely. It starts in Florida, then goes to LA, then goes to Norway, then kind of comes back, uh, to Florida a little bit. And what was, uh, you know, your experience in LA like, like, uh, did you, cause I know that you wrote about a, a lot of the major venues and bars and things like that that were really popular among the late 80s yeah. um, rock and metal and hard rock scenes. Um, tell me about what you, what kind of research was uh, going on for you in, in L.A. for the book. Well, L.A. and I have a long history because uh, my 
my dad lives sort of north of the city and and that my, basically my dad's whole family is from southern california so um that was just very very useful for me when i was writing the the la section of the book because it was it was a place that i felt more or less kind of comfortable in and i knew things about and i'd been to see shows going you know going as far back as i guess the late no early 90s um uh, in LA, so I had I had kind of a vague sense of what it what it was like, um, but of course it was a lot of fun to go back and revisit a lot of these locations. Again, you know, many of them are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are there, but kind of unrecognizable, like the Whiskey a Go Go, and then there are some like the um, Rainbow Bar and Grill, um, which was this legendary kind of after hours after the show very sleazy sunset strip um really ridiculous kind of ugly very very dirty bar um which at some point i decided would be would play a really important role in that in that section of the book um because one of the main characters kira uh works there as a bartender um so then i went back there and spent some time there and um you know it was it was just this legendary hang out and um you know let me kill mr from motorhead uh spent every day that he wasn't on tour sitting at the outdoor bar of the rainbow bar and grill uh drinking jack and cokes and playing computer poker (laughs) he just was always be there i saw him there before he passed away um it was funny so I, i knew i had to work that in i mean once once i kind of decided that the book was going to be set in the world of metal. Then, of course, I started to become concerned about finding a way to to represent not all of what metal culture is at all, because you couldn't do that in a novel, but at least try to give a sense of, of a few different facets. So that's when I decided that the book would be, the novel would be split into thirds. And in my mind, each of the three sections was uh, going to be um, distinguished by a place, one of the three characters, and a type of, of metal. Mm. Um, in some cases, in some aspects, I think it can probably, it probably comes through. And in some, it probably doesn't, wouldn't come through for anyone but me. But I even thought about that the sort of sensibilities of the type of metal that I was, was writing about um, when I was when I was writing the language of the book, you know, um, yeah, and I was certainly listening to it and thinking about it very much, um, you know, because these three characters that we follow, these three very close friends, Kip, Kira, and Leslie, um, they also at the beginning of the book are living in Florida. They're very very passionately into the death metal scene, but then they give that up and they want to get out of the small town and they move to Los Angeles and then they kind of almost yeah i mean depend i mean kind of in an ambivalent way but they they get sucked up into the the kind of hair metal scene um in LA um and and thrash as well um in another way um and then the third section of course is set in Norway and it has a very different feel for me because it's it's grimmer and scarier and it's 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 when these three kids have kind of fallen the spell of black metal, Norwegian black metal, which is a very different animal, 
from yeah. certainly from from glam metal on the Sunset Strip in California. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the uh, Norway section. Um, anybody who follows metal uh, likely knows a little bit about the story of Oystein Arseth from Mayhem and Varg Vikernes of Burzum. And that was a really interesting thing to pop up in the book. And I don't want to give too much of the Norway section of your book away for mm-hmm. listeners. Um, Vikernes notably kills Arseth in 1993. Uh, none of this happens in your book, so I don't feel like I'm giving anything away. No, but no. They're creepy as heck in the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you did you did a good job of depicting uh, Euronymous and uh, and Varg. Um, so I'm curious about your and, and you use them as characters in the book. You use these real guys. You use this yeah. real this real record store. Uh, where Oystein Arseth uh, had a shop um, that was kind of the hangout of the Norwegian black metal scene. Right. Um, tell me a little which, bit about which your... still exists actually, um, not under that name. Yeah, and not um, not with the same owners, but um, some very very kind of extremely passionate black metal true believers have moved into that space and preserved the whole basement the way that it was in those years, you know, Yeah. which is, it's, it was amazing to be able to go down there and see just how creepy that space was, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, your, your use of this real stuff is really cool. Cause you have like history of this music genre woven throughout this entire Norway section. And I'm just curious, like, what other, uh, like, Norway research um, experience stands out for you about, like, getting this right for this part of the book? Yeah, well, like I said, I went there in the middle of winter and um, spent some time in Oslo, went to this record store, uh, Helvetta, which I was, you know, I had no expectations that I would find anything there. Um, I just kind of wanted to get a sense of the neighborhood around it, you know, you never quite know what what you're going to need, um, what sort of detail you're going to need, and uh, you know it was amazing to get there and see that there was a record store there, and to step in and to kind of, yeah. So that was an incredible experience. Um, uh, and then from there, I took the train, the way um, the characters in the novel do, uh, west across Norway to um, to the Atlantic coast to the um, to Bergen to the city of Bergen. And um, which was very important, of course, in the world of black metal. Um, And I went to uh, the church, one of the most famous churches that were burned. Um, uh, And I went there in the middle of the night because there's a scene in the um, in the novel where one of the main characters, Kip, is is kind of trying to get information, trying to kind of ingratiate himself in a way um in an almost a kind of double agent kind of way um with these very very scary very violent um a little bit crazy a little bit stupid black metal guys um Mm. and one of the ways they kind of decide they're going to i guess test him um is um making him go with them um to uh commit arson to to burn down (laughs) one of these beautiful old wooden stave Christian Norwegian churches that are unbelievable cultural um, treasures, uh, but also happen to be 
100% made out of wood. Mm. Um, and so in order to kind of find my way into that, I, um, I basically trespassed on this, in this church in the middle of winter, in the middle of the night. Um, I didn't burn it down. Uh, full disclosure, spoiler alert, I didn't burn it down. But um, <laughs> it was, it was, the whole thing was incredibly fun. And I was amazed, particularly in Norway, how many of the things I was going to write about were still there and um, were kind of just almost as though they'd been waiting for someone to come along and, um, and look at them again and pay attention to them again and, 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 and write something about them. Um, the, the trip to Norway was, was really amazing just all around, you know. Um, yeah, Norway is just an, an incredible place. Um, and one of, the, one of the funniest things that came out of that trip was um, people always think, um, you know, I don't know to what degree the people who are listening to this podcast are, are going to know a lot about metal or not. But, you know, black metal is this particularly grim, particularly hard to listen to, particularly depressed a bleak, super extreme form of metal. Um, and it's the form of metal that, that people associate with, uh, you know, people wearing corpse paint and weird, you know, blacked out eyes and, and um, uh, that sort of, the sort of old grainy black and white photographs and all that stuff. Um, and so the general take on what it was that that led to the creation of black metal or this extreme version of it in Norway and Sweden was that, it, well, you know, the winters are so bleak and it's so dark there and everything's so depressing there and everyone's an alcoholic and it's just, uh, it's, it's just so hopeless and grim up there at the, on the top of the world. And of course that's going to be expressed through this, this amazingly despairing and bleak form of music. But what everybody told me there that I spoke to, especially the people who had been around in the early days of, of black metal in Norway, was exactly the opposite. They all said, you know, Norway is so comfortable. There's almost no unemployment. Everybody's doing well. Everyone goes to church. Everyone does exactly what their neighbors do. And it's just this incredibly comfortable, boring, easy, pleasant way of life. It was actually boredom and prosperity mm. that led to this extreme reaction to create this unbelievably grim, dark music. Uh, and that wasn't too different from what people told me in Venice, Florida also, uh, when they were talking about the rise of death metal there. They, they told me that, you know, it was terrible to be a teenager in this, in this little town in, Flor in sunny Florida um, that was 85% retirees, you know, mm. there was just nothing going on, you know? So I think that actually it's more often boredom that leads to these extreme artistic reactions than it is anything as predictable as, um, you know, long winters or something like that. Well, you and I both know about, uh, winters uh, <laughs> yeah. year after year in buffalo and it's so funny that like the gray of buffalo and the the endless snow is um it, it kind of made me feel at home when i was reading your your wintry scenes <laughs> in in norway i didn't really feel it was if all it was all that different than my everyday reality living in this part of the world yeah <laughs> i love it well although John, buffalo is very sunny in the summers we have to one must always say that 
absolutely our summers are unbeatable up here in the great lakes <laughs> um what are you uh what are you working on next like because i'm you know i'm intrigued by by following along with what it is that you do now that i've actually found and enjoyed your work oh that's kind of you to say um i would say my life right now is almost evenly divided between um trying to really write like a pure pure genre thriller which is something i've never done before mm. and uh, which follows all sorts of of codes that do not apply to um the types of novels i've written in the past so i'm doing that and i, don't, I don't, have no idea what i'll do with it when it's done i'm writing it really quickly which is the way you're supposed to write crime fiction um that's that's half my life and the other half of my life is taking care of my son um because uh that's essentially a full-time job in and of itself <laughs> and um so mostly i'm just really tired walking around um mm -hmm. staring into space and every once in a while i'll get a little <laughs> writing done i love it are you uh, are you getting out and seeing any uh, any music these days i have not seen i have not seen music in a really long time oh, um man. I need to get back out there. I need, I, I've even signed up for all sorts of alerts that'll tell me which, you know, what shows are coming and what's, what's happening. Um, and then, you know, when it gets to be around showtime or earlier, I just, I just think, oh yeah, okay, I'm just going to lie down, take a little nap. And then I'm just going to jump up, you know, what we used to call a show nap mm -hmm. back in the day. Uh, but my show naps as a parent now just become, they, they just first the show naps become regular naps and the regular naps just become all night long. <laughs> so I'm, I need to, I need to, I need to work on that. Well, J John, it's, I'm so, yeah. Like, I'm so glad that you're uh, writing about music. Um, yeah. It's fun. This book is so good. I hope that anybody out there will uh, look it up. And uh, if they're into, especially if you're into extreme music, I mean, there's no better novel out there for a person who has an affinity for, for, uh, for extreme music, metal, punk, hardcore, anything like that. I think that uh, it's a nice little adventure for anybody out there who digs some, some off the beaten path music. Well, that's great, Gregory. Thanks for saying it. Where, uh, where can listeners find you if they want to, uh, you know, check you out online or follow along so they can get some updates? Um, probably the best place is my Instagram account, which is just uh, the John Ray uh, Ray with a with a W, so W R A Y. Um, it's yeah, it's at the John Ray at Instagram. That's probably the best place. You know, writers used to spend so much time on their um, on their websites and all that stuff, but nowadays most writers seem to just you know they're it, then for a while it was their Twitter account, and now it's their Instagram account. I mean, sooner or later, God knows it'll be TikTok or something. Yeah. Or maybe already is. Maybe it has been for years. Well in other words, in other words, I'm not up to date. It's all good. I mean, I was able to uh to find you just fine, and that's why we're chatting today. You, you know? did, you did. That's right. I love it. Um, well, John Ray, author of 2023's Gone to the Wolves, a fabulous novel that I recently loved a whole heck of a lot. I'm uh Really grateful to you to uh, spend some time with me and chat about the book and uh, hang out here on good old New Books Network to uh, to chat about it. Really appreciate your time and your energy and your stories. I loved hearing about your uh, research process, too. That was a real highlight for me. Well, thanks for having me, Gregory. A lot of fun. Thanks, John. <laughs>